Good morning. Before I start this sermon, let me open up in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we've come to you today as needy people. We wish to know you. You have given us your word. You have given us your Holy Spirit. And you have worked a great work on our behalf through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. As we look at this portion of scripture today, as we hear the teaching of our dear apostle Paul, may the Spirit of God open our eyes to see and give us hearts that are moved to obey. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, first of all, a little disclaimer, the outline on the back here, I won't cover every point, and uh, some of these verses I've listed that are cited here I won't cover, and some of what I won't cover will be covered in the small group discussion questions this week. So we'll start with that disclaimer. Um, some of you know that uh, Rick Lyon and I are just today, actually, Rick is completing a, a fall quarter class for the adults on the book of Galatians. And so when uh, Pastor John asked for one of the elders to step in and do a sermon for him this week so he and Sherry could have a much needed break and uh, to enjoy themselves a time away, and I decided to volunteer for this, I, I did so thinking this would be a great way to kind of cap off at least the teaching uh, portion that I have had for uh, in the book of Galatians. So today's sermon is excerpts from the book of Galatians, and I'm going to cover a key passage or what I think is maybe one of the most important parts of the book of Galatians. The reading this morning that we had in Acts, which uh, a little different than the readings that we usually have, is essentially a little snippet of Paul's first missionary journey. And uh, as we get into the book of Galatians, um, it fits really well because uh, essentially it's his ministry among the people, at least some of the people, who are the churches of Galatia that he's actually writing to in the book of Galatians. And so you just got a snippet of his evangelistic ministry there. But I'm gonna open the series today or the sermon today with a, with a quote from C.S. Lewis. And many of you will know this quote. It comes from a sermon that he wrote entitled The Weight of Glory. And what, what C.S. Lewis is doing in this quote is he's explaining to us that as human beings we have this this uh, problem that we tend to uh, choose the lesser, the lesser things than the greater things that God offers to us. And so listen to what Lewis says, quoting, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the reward, rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And I think the point, one of the points that Lewis is making, again, as humans we have this this problem of falling into foolish exchanges. That's what he's talking about. And so it is with the Galatians. I think the Galatians are a people that fell into a foolish exchange. They were given these promises that were so incredible 
and they embrace them initially, and yet they are tempted to fall back into making a poor exchange for a lesser good than what God had offered them. And that's really what we're going to cover today. The overwhelming promises of the gospel offered to us in Christ, and yet they want to fall back into a system of a self-aggrandizing works righteousness religion. We're tempted to do the same. He says to the Galatians in Galatians 4.9, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? We are confronted daily by these same temptations. And so this little book in the New Testament is here to help us. The theme for the book of Galatians, and I've taken this statement from Bible commentator William Hendrickson. He says the, the theme of Galatians is the gospel of justification of faith apart from law works defended against its detractors. And first, a little explanation of the detractors. The detractors were some individuals that are called Judaizers or those of the circumcision party. So as Paul went about evangelizing, as we read this uh, earlier, he had Jews that followed back and caused him trouble. Now, in some cases, these were unbelieving Jews, but later, after the churches have been planted in Galatia, another set of Jewish believers come in. They claim to be believers in Christ, but they want to teach the Galatians that faith in Christ alone is not enough. You have to be circumcised and keep the Mosaic religious system in order to truly be saved. And this is the issue that Paul is going to be defending the gospel against. The book of Galatians is clearly polemical. That, is, that, that means it's argumentative. It's a disputation, and it has that sound of a disputation. And in a few minutes, we're going to get to some of Paul's disputation with the Galatians for a very good reason. The danger of falling away from the true faith. Paul takes off the gloves. And certainly in this day and age, there is a definite benefit for us to hear these things. Some critical questions to ask. What is the importance of justification? How is the Christian justified? And why is it even an issue? We're going to come to that in a minute. Some background, if you could uh, visualize with me a map of Turkey and a region going right down the center of the country from north to south, it was, that region was called Galatia. And Galatia was made up of the, the native peoples that lived there, plus groups of Celtic peoples that had moved in and immigrated in from uh, Western Europe, uh, France perhaps. And so the churches that were read about earlier when Eli read out of the book of Acts, those were cities in the southern part of this region. And those are the cities that, that are that where the churches of Galatia are that Paul is writing to. So you got a flavor in that reading out of Acts of kind of what kind of people were living in that area that he evangelized and how they initially responded to him and kind of their worldview. That has everything to do with how they respond later. 
Another important thing to note by way of background, the book of Galatians is very likely the first book that the apostle Paul wrote in his whole uh, compendium of writings in the New Testament. Some Bible scholars think it was 1 Thessalonians, but nonetheless, the book of Galatians is very early. So the issue that Paul is dealing with at Galatia is what stimulated his apostolic ministry of writing these books that become the apostolic teaching that we follow today. So the issue is critical, and uh, this is a very important thing to understand about Galatians. Now, the letter itself, uh, Paul's defense of the gospel preached, his apostolic ministry, revelation, experience, and confirmation. Well, as you know, if you've <clears throat> read any, any New Testament books, the Apostle Paul was constantly under attack, wasn't he? Every place he went, as we read this morning, already there was somebody after him to attack him. Attack him personally, attack his authority as an apostle, and attack his message. And he starts out in this book by defending his uh, authority. In Galatians 1.12, he says, and this is really important to note, talking about the gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He had experiences of direct spiritual encounters with Christ himself. He says in 1.16 that God, God's purpose was to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So Paul didn't have a mentor of sorts, a human mentor. It wasn't another apostle that came and revealed to him the gospel or shared with him the gospel. It was Christ himself in spiritual encounters that Paul had where he received his gospel directly from Christ. Very important to understand that. His letters become an explanation of that revelation that he got directly from the risen Christ. Later, he did privately meet with Peter and James and John in Jerusalem, men who were already uh, apostles. And as they shared with one another, those apostles shared with him the right hand of fellowship, in, in, in essence, accepting him as a full partner in ministry. But Paul's commissioning was actually directly from the risen Christ. Their ministry had been from the Christ while he was on earth, but Paul's was directly from the risen Christ. So really important to understand about the authority behind his writings, all of his writings, but particularly here in this book today. Well, I said that the Galatians, uh, Galatians is a book of disputation, so I wanna give you a flavor for this in what I will call you foolish Galatians. And there were needed rebukes that Paul gave throughout the book. And I want you to get a flavor for the force of Paul's arguments before we get into the key text here. Here's a few of his uh, rebukes. <clears throat> Galatians 1.6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Galatians 1.8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Galatians 3.1, oh foolish 
Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And finally, Galatians 5, 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Well, now the key portion of the Bible that we're going to cover today, if you want to turn to this text, you're welcome to do so now. It is Galatians 2, 15 through 21. <clears throat> I'm going to start by reading the whole portion, and then I'll go back and take it uh, verse by verse. <clears throat> we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet... We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We pick up this text in an occurrence that Paul has related to the Galatians that I'm not going to go through. It's basically when he rebukes the apostle Peter, who coming to Antioch felt the freedom to uh, lay aside Jewish customs when he was with the Gentiles. But when Jews show up from Jerusalem, he reassumes somewhat of a legalistic view of the faith and then treats himself aloof of the Gentile believers with whom he just had fellowship. And Paul calls him on the carpet for hypocrisy. So that is the section that just precedes what we're covering today. He uses this as a springboard to, into this key teaching on justification by faith. So let's go back and break it down. First of all, Galatians 2.15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. What does he mean there? That sounds somewhat aloof in its statement. Well, what he means is there was within uh, Judaism what I call the holy tradition. It's the Mosaic law system. The Torah understood as the system of laws, civil statutes, and priestly ordinances comprising the Mosaic Covenant, especially understood as the means of earning God's favor. Paul acknowledges that there really is an advantage to the Jew. The Jew had been given in the incredible promises of the covenant with God. The Jew had been given the scriptures. There were much advantages for a Jew over a Gentile. Yet, even with all of these advantages, he says, yet or nevertheless, 
we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So he's saying, even though we Jews, Peter, Paul, Barnabas, those from James, even us Christians, as we observe ourselves, we understand that through the law and works of the law, we are not made acceptable to God. A person, any person, is not acquitted and set free from the guilt of sin, that is, from breaking God's law, by his own works or deeds committed with the idea of, committal, of acquittal. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. So now we're going to pick up this word justified, this word that is of mega importance. What does Paul mean by justification? And I'm going to have several quotes for you that will be above that I've gotten from commentators William Hendrickson and theologian John Murray because I believe these explain the meaning quite well. First of all, justification defined. When used as here in Galatians 2:15 and 16 in the dominant forensive sense, that's, that's a legal meaning, justification may be defined as that gracious act of God whereby on the basis solely of Christ's accomplished mediatorial work, he declares the sinner just, and the latter, that is the sinner, accepts this benefit with a believing heart. Since we cannot earn or achieve justification, since it is a gift to us from God, what is our response then? From John Murray, or no, Hendrickson goes on to say, faith is the hand that accepts this gift. Faith itself is also a gift. This does not reduce man to sheer passivity. Is not a tree which accepts water and minerals from the soil and light from the sun, etc., very active? So it is also with faith. It is receptive, but not passive. It is very active indeed. And so faith is active, but in that action, there is no merit or, or legal standing of works righteousness before God. But faith is active. Faith reaches out and accepts the gift that God is handing to us. Why faith? Many people struggle. Why faith? Why does God set faith as the operative uh, principle here? And John Murray explains, faith is presupposed in justification, is the precondition of justification. Not because we are justified on the ground of faith or for the reason that we are justified because of faith, but only for the reason that faith is God's appointed instrument through which he dispenses his grace. We are justified by faith and therefore simply by entrustment of ourselves in all our dismal hopelessness to the Savior whose righteousness is undefiled and undefilable. And so it is that God's means of grace to us is faith. It isn't that it is our faith. It is the faith that we exercise because of the work of God in our hearts to receive the gift that he offers us. That is that means of grace. 
the action of one receiving a gift and nothing more. There is no idea of accruing some kind of merit before God in the act of trusting. Continuing with what Paul says here, <clears throat> to finalize this particular verse, he says, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Remember the benefits to a Jew, one being scripture. Paul is thinking here of Psalm 143, verses one and two, when he writes this phrase. And he knew this Psalm, it says, hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me, in your righteousness, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Moving on, verse 17. <clears throat> but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What's he saying here? I've uh, learned from a man named John Stott, I believe what he is saying in this verse. He said, justification is not a legal fiction in which a man's status is changed while his character is left untouched. In other words, we're not just declared righteous, but nothing happens to us other than that declaration. No, no, not at all. We are justified in Christ, and someone who is united to Christ is never the same person again. Instead, he is changed. It is not just his standing before God which has changed. It is he himself radically, permanently changed. Justification changes our position with God, but it changes us as well for we must be in Christ to be justified. Verse 19, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Paul understood the hopelessness of trying to be justified by law keeping. There's a hymn we sing around here frequently. I think Paul would have he would have reverberated with the thoughts of this hymn in this verse. A beggar poor at mercy's door lies such a wretch as I. Thou knowest my need is great indeed. Lord, hear me when I cry. With guilt beset and deep in debt, for pardon, Lord, I pray. Oh, let thy love sufficient prove to take my sins away. Verse 20, which I think is the high point of this section. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This verse is somewhat easy to understand in its intent but I believe very difficult to understand in personal application. The death of Christ is unique and unrepeatable. So what is he saying here? Those who place their faith in Christ are united with him by that faith. 
united so closely that his experience, experience now becomes theirs. They share his death to the old order and his resurrection to new life. Although we die to self when we come to Christ, our self is dethroned. We experience, we're called to experience what, what God really intends for us to experience. Paul says he's died and he's no longer living, but Christ is living in him. And yet the life I'm living in the flesh, this kind of difficult idea of understanding. He's not talking about some kind of Far Eastern spiritual soup where the individual is somehow absorbed into the cosmic whole. That isn't what he's talking about here. Rather, it's still the Apostle Paul in the flesh. He still had a disability which he had experienced at Galatia in his body that he says was a trial to the Galatians and yet they were kind to him. He still had that. He had a particular personality, which is seen in how he writes the book, in his intellect, and in how he approaches the argument. At the end of the book, of course, he dictated his New Testament books to someone who wrote them, but at the end, it says he picked up the pen and he kind of wrote the ending. And he said, hey, this is how I write. These letters are kind of big. This is how I write. So Paul's personality is all there. He's still there, yet he says, I'm not here. Christ is here. How does that work? Spurgeon says, how many first-person pronouns are there in this verse? Are there not as many as eight? It swarms with I and me. It does not mention someone else nor a third party far away. But the apostle treats of himself, his own inner life, his own spiritual death, the love of Christ to him, and the great sacrifice that Christ made for him. This is instructive for it is the distinguishing mark of the Christian religion that it brings out a man's individuality. It does not make us selfish. On the contrary, it, cur it cures us of that evil. In Christ removing the blots of sin upon us, we become what he really intends us to be. So what then is our motive for Christian living? Peter says it. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you but believe in him, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. 1 Peter 1.8. So summing up the paragraph at the end, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So if there was any way that we as human beings could make ourselves good enough, if there was any way to clean ourselves up, if there was any work we could do, if there was any law that we could keep to make ourselves acceptable to God, there's no reason for Christ to have died. That's what Paul says right here. There's no reason. The only reason is there isn't anything we can do in and of ourselves except accept the gift he's given us. You've heard this one, I'm sure. Christ plus nothing equals salvation. Now, our living as a Christian, the freedom that we have in Christ, isn't to be an op opportunity for reckless sinning. 
It's rather to be an opportunity of living out our grateful thankfulness to what he's done for us in Christ. So let's look at applying the truth from today. You know, what we put into practice, we retain. What we don't put into practice, we lose. It's not our goal simply to pile our heads up with lots of great truth and never do anything with the truth, for it's the truth in action that becomes the change. First of all, if you're here today and you don't really know what, what we're talking about in terms of what does it mean to be in Christ, please don't leave without asking someone that question and having them explain that to you. I have a couple of applications. The first I'm going to call being in Christ, and then the second, faith working through love. So the first application does come directly from Galatians 2.20. It's not I who live any longer in this flesh, but Christ who lives in me. Um, some years ago, um, and, and I'm assuming you have your own personal and private devotions as well as those that we do as a church, but there's an idea that I learned some years ago from when I was a young guy from another young guy named Bob Kreider. I'm going to call it personal cons daily consecration is what I'm going to call this idea. And uh, he was a seminary student at Western Seminary, and I only knew him for a couple of months, and then he went about to become a pastor and then uh, served the Lord for some years until uh, by way of cancer, he's now in the presence of Christ. But this is what he said he did every day, and I've remembered this for many years. So here's an idea about consecrating your life to Christ every day. Get in front of the mirror and just go through this routine. Lord Jesus, you will see with these eyes and you will hear with these ears, speak with this mouth, think with this mind, work with these hands, and walk with these feet. May I be Christ to those around me today that I encounter. That's just personally consecrating yourself to the Lord as a daily practice that Christ is living in you as a Christian. The second one is faith working through love, and this comes from Galatians itself. The last part of Galatians that I didn't cover today, Paul talks about what to do with what he's telling us. But in Galatians 5.13, he says, and 14, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then in Galatians 6, 9, and 10, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. You know, our personal religious rituals and our cultural distinctions mean, mean nothing. We have an opportunity in serving Christ to do good to people, to do his good to people, to show the love of Christ to people every day. Uh, John Piper uh, says that uh, a good definition of love is love is our overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. So what I'd like to challenge you today is, and maybe you already do this, but I would like to challenge you to think about practical ways every week. What are some practical ways that you can act out the love of Christ in the lives of people in this church 
and then in the lives of the outsiders, those outside our church, so they may see Jesus living in you. I'm going to close today by praying for all of us. I know no better prayer than a prayer of Paul's in Ephesians 3, and that's what I'm going to pray for you all now. So join me in praying scripture. I pray that God, according to the riches of his glory, may grant to you that you would be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge that you would be filled up to the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.